upon us. Um, because we cannot bear the burden of all the, the challenges and things that we face in prayer in our lives. We cannot bear it alone. So we are not going to God saying, um, Dear God, here's a, a laundry list of things. Or, Dear God, here's the proper formula to get you to do whatever I want. But rather, we come to Him hoping to unite our heart with His. To know His will and to find peace even in the struggles that we may be facing or those we know are facing. And when it comes to praying for the ministries of our church, we are not praying for success. You know, dear Jesus, please keep Eric on target today. Um, Or let this be the best sermon I've ever heard. Or dear Lord, we need better musicians. Um, Which, by the way, not a concern here at Bedford Road. Um, it, tremendous. And all you have to do is um, is be a pastor and be talking to other pastors to know what an abundance of, of music Bedford Road has been blessed with. Um, but, you know, it's like, oh, dear Jesus, you know, whatever. But rather to unite our heart. And what does what is God's heart as we come together to worship? It is that we, we are journeying together, we're walking together, we're growing, we're learning, we're engaging with his word and his spirit and his people. And we're, we're progressing as we seek to be uh, more like Christ in our relationships with one another, our relationships with God. And so would you join me in a word of prayer this morning um, as we, we pray for this, that our hearts be united with the heart of God together. Creator God, you hold the matter of the universe together by your will. You spoke and it was. And when all that is is gone, you will still be. And now we come to your eternal word spoken into history in human terms that we might know you that you, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, care enough about us to reveal yourself, to not only put on flesh as Christ, but to incarnate your message in the lives of the men and women that we read of in Scripture. May we find our heart in harmony and rhythm with your heart. May we love as you love, chasten as you chasten, celebrate what you celebrate, mourn what you mourn. May we find peace in your will, even when it is not our will. May you be glorified today as we take a look at these words and hear your voice and your spirit among your people. We pray this by the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. We turn to 2 Kings chapter 14. Um, I have a note to myself. I want to mention this. 
I've had a hard time making sense of my own series. Um, I, I really felt that that I, I, it was what where we should be um, in the last few weeks, and yet normally, if you've been around a while, you know that when I do a series, generally there's kind of an overarching narrative, some some big broad ideas that uh, are being tied together, and that really didn't materialize. I kept working toward it, trying to figure it out and all that stuff. But um, so that happens from time to time. Um, usually, usually it resolves before I start teaching the series, but um, it didn't really happen this time. Um, we've got two more weeks, three more weeks maybe of, of looking at the house of David, but I want to fast forward this week um, because as I, as I've been looking and saying, you know, kind of considering what, where do we go with this? Um, my attention was drawn uh, to Second uh, Kings chapter 14 and one of the, the descendants of David, uh, a guy by the name of Amaziah, or Amaziah is normally uh, how it's pronounced. And so in Second Kings chapter 14, in the second year of Yoash, the son of Yoaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Yoash, the king of Judah, you already notice there's a problem because there's a king of Judah and a king of Israel with the same name that gets confusing. Um, he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like his father, David his father. Now when we read that line, what does that tell us? Is he a good king or a bad king? Right, he's a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He's not totally like David, but he's close. He did in all things as Joash's father had done. But the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king, his father. His father had been uh, assassinated. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses where the Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die in his own sin. He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, that's down by the Dead Sea. He took Salah by storm and called it Yachtil, which its name is to this day. Then Amaziah, or Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us look one another in the face. He, he's actually saying to him, let's go to war. Let, let's fight this out. That's what that means. And Jehoash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, the king of Judah. This is the second best insult in the book of Kings. The first belongs to Ahab. Um, Ahab is in a battle with the Arameans, the Syrians, and the Syrian king says to Ahab, Ahab, come on out and fight us. We're going to beat you. And, and Ahab makes this great declaration. He says, it's not how well you put your armor on. It's whether you can take it off when you're done. In other words, I don't care how much you boast. It's all about who's, who's still standing at the end that matters. Just... That's just OG threats. Um, but this is the second best one in Kings. He says, um, a thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife. 
and a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. In other words, you are messing with things you cannot possibly comprehend. There is a much bigger issue than what you're dealing with. You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory. Stay at home, for why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? Now, um, just to give you reference so you understand, um, the kingdom of Israel is much more powerful, much wealthier, much better connected than the kingdom of Judah. Judah is kind of in the backside of the world. We've mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's like Arkansas. We all know it's there. We can't name much about it. Um, the rest of the world knows that Judah has a king. The king's name, the king rules in the house of David. They all know that, but Judah's kind of far away. Nobody cares about them. But Israel, Israel is connected. Um, Israel is well known. There are there are Israeli Israelite um, Israeli mercenaries fighting in the Assyrian army. Ahab, who was one of the earlier kings, about 70 years before this, he's able to field the largest chariot force in the Assyrian army. I mean, these, this Israel is a military powerhouse. Judah is a bunch of shepherds living on hills in the back country, and that's what that's what. Um, Yehoash is saying to Amaziah, he's saying, who do you think you are? You beat a bunch of Edomites, a bunch of people living in the desert, and Edom is the desert. He said, you, you, just stay home. Don't, don't be dumb. But, verse 11, Amaziah would not listen. So Yehoash, king of Israel, went up. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Yoash, king of, of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Yehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And he came to Jerusalem, and he broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. He seized all the gold and silver and the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages. And then he returned to Samaria. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash that he did and his might and how he fought with Amaziah the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel and Jeroboam his son reigned in his place. Amaziah the son of Jehoash king of Judah lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash son of Jehoaz king of Israel. And now the rest of his deeds... Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? They made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. He fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish, and he put him to death there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, um, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father. And he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Now, Azariah, by the way, if you read First uh, Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, Isaiah says, I was in the temple. Azariah is that King Uzziah, same person, all right? Um, he reigns for 40-some um, years, or 50 years. It's something like that. I'm not good at math. Um, what happens here? I mean, Amaziah... He, he he seems to be doing everything right. I mean, he 
he's following after David. Uh, I mean, he's not doing it perfectly, but he's he's trying to to keep the kingdom centered. He's had some military accomplishments. Um, he's he's avenged his father's death, but he was very careful to abide by the law, by the Torah, so that he he didn't punish the children of the people that assassinated him. He only he only punished the actual men who conspired against his father. So here is a a good seems to be a godly guy trying to do the, his best to be a king, and yet the one event that is recorded is him getting his 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 head handed to him by the evil king of the northern kingdom of Israel. A king who was worshiping Canaanite gods and a king who was, um, who was really a part of the downfall of that kingdom. Um, this kingdom, that kingdom will completely fall in about 50 years after this. Why didn't Amaziah succeed? Why didn't the righteous king of the southern kingdom, ruling in the line of the house of David, defeat the unrighteous king of the northern kingdom connected to the powers of the world? Shouldn't in this narrative, the people who love God, serve God, are faithful to God, shouldn't they always win? The reason that we bring this up is because so often we are presented this idea that if you are faithful, if you pray the right way, if you give the right offerings, if you attend church on a regular basis, if you do all of your personal devotions and you follow all the rules, you will always succeed. And so if you're not succeeding, you must be doing something wrong. Right? I mean, how many of you have ever dealt with that in yourself it's like well i'm doing everything right but it's not working now i'm not talking about assembling walmart furniture because no matter no matter how well you follow the directions on assembling those things they never go together right there's always one screw that's a quarter of an inch off you put the thing together you set it up and it does this all right it's like putting up Christmas trees. There's a knack to it. Some people can do it. Some people can't. All right. There's um, all that stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you checked all the boxes and yet things don't work out the way you, you they should. Right? I mean, shouldn't we succeed? So, for example, you, you're going through a difficult time and you know that you need the peace of God. So you get you get whatever advice and direction and wisdom you get and you, you study some resources and they tell you to go to Scripture and you pray the right prayers and you do the right things and you have the right conversations and yet you still don't have peace. You're still being defeated by it. Uh, my sister, uh, yesterday, my sister Kristen sent me a Facebook message. Um, how many of you know the movie Never Ending Story? All right. Uh, how many of you know it's based off of a German novel? All right. Okay, good. All right. If you know anything about the German literature, right? Um, it, you know, my dad one time said, "Give the Germans a crib; they'll turn it into a machine gun every time," um, which, which is an accurate description, uh, especially in the 20th century. Um, but, but the whole German literature tends to be a little odd. I mean, how many of you have ever actually read um, the uh, um, the the Brothers Grimm, the actual fairy tales that are in Grimm's fairy tales? You like if you're conditioned to reading, watching the Disney movies, you're like you're like, oh, this is so sweet and so happy. I'm gonna get Grimm's fairy tales and read it to my kids. 
Whoa! Apparently, the German folk people <laughs> really enjoyed scaring the bejesus out of their kids before they sent them to bed. Because those fairy tales are, they are grim. All right, no pun intended. Um, but aptly named compilers. Uh, so, never-ending story. My sister texted me. She goes, she sends me a Facebook message. She says, she says, did you know the never-ending story is about dealing with depression? Now, I did. How many of you knew that? All right, a couple of you actually knew that. All right, it's about dealing with the depression of losing your mother and facing the challenges of, and so, you know, Bastion escapes in the world, but all the stuff, the, the you know, the Atreus horse dying in the mire and, and the nothing and the wolf and all that stuff that's going on, it's all about, it's all kind of a typification, kind of a, a Freudian id thing. We won't get into the psychology of it, but, but it's, it's kind of digging into this idea of depression, right? And how many of us have ever felt like that? We're, 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 we fall into not necessarily a clinical depression, like a, a medical depression. We just fall into a, a depression groove, right? It just occurred to me the word depression. Uh, anyway, um, so so uh, they, why didn't I think of that before? Um, but you know, we fall into this thing, and we go, well, there's there's steps I should be able to take to get out of this. I should be able to get myself out of this, right? Here's all the steps everybody says. This is how they deal with it, and yet I'm still there. Why don't the steps work? Wasn't, we go back to Amaziah, isn't Amaziah doing the right thing? I mean, the northern kingdom broke off from the southern kingdom. They, they defied the covenant of God. They, they've fallen into idolatry. I mean, it's, it's a chaotic kingdom where kings are ruling for a few years and then their kid takes over and then somebody assassinated and a general takes over. It's, it's chaos. It's constant civil war. It's constant idolatry. Amaziah is the descendant of David. He's the righteous king. Isn't it right for him to try to bring Israel back, this northern kingdom, back under the authority of of the, the, the house of David, the covenant of God, isn't he doing what is the right thing? Why does he lose? This is what was kind of rolling around in my head as I'm reading this. Why does he lose? Is it because he didn't prepare? No. He's got an active military force. He knows what he's doing. Is it because he didn't know what he was facing? No. He knows who the Israelites are. He knows their power. He knows their ability. At certain times, his ancestors have relied upon the Israelites to get them out of situations. There have been flowing alliances and things. He's aware of all of this. Let me offer you a, a thought. The issue is not that what Amaziah wanted to do was not the right thing. The issue was that he was trying to do the right thing, the godly thing, on his own terms, in his own time. He figured, I beat the Edomites, I might as well go fight the Israelites. God let me beat the Edomites. I should be able to defeat the Israelites. Um, when we, we just kind of transition and say, well, this is the right thing to do. I should do it right now. Here's the right thing. And there's no, no moment like the, no, no time like the present. Let's just go ahead and do the right thing. 
Um, I'm not great with timing. Uh, I am one of those people that technology blew up my ability to build a to-do list. You guys know that feeling? Um, I'm one of those people, you email me, I have to respond right away. I, like, I can't, I can't like, put it on a list to respond later. I'm actually trying right now to rediscipline myself to that because I used to be that guy. When I worked um, for Putnam Investments, I used to keep these executive notebooks that were my to-do lists. And I had a hierarchy and it was color-coded and it was really, really involved. And at the end of the day, anything I, didn't have, I hadn't done on the list got moved to the next page and it got elevated and rotated. And if I didn't get a chance to get your email, it was okay because at 5 o'clock I was out the door. And so my email stayed there. I didn't take it home. I know for some of you, it's difficult to understand that there was a time when email was local, it didn't follow you around, all right? Like you're just walking down the street, you get a notification on email. There was a world, some of you still live in that world, all right? Um, But there was a time, there was a time when your email, your work email was at work and you did not get it at home. There was a time when people you worked with did not know your phone number. They could not reach you at home. So you can have a to-do list you had, and you did that. And I have lost that, that discipline, so I'm working to try to get that discipline. Because, you know, what's interesting is when, when we are just moving from one task to the other, good, right things, we're doing right things, but we're not thinking about the timing, we're not thinking about the motivation, we're not thinking about the moment, we're not thinking about the relationship. We're just thinking, this is the right thing, I must do the right thing right now. And the reality is, if you look at God, if you look at the way that God deals with humanity, that is not, God is not impulsive, turn-of-the-moment things. When God promised Abraham that the land of Canaan would be belong to him and his descendants, he says, but the wrath of the Amorites is not yet filled. So it's not going to happen for about 400 years. You know? Uh, when Israel was waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. We need a Messiah now. We need a Messiah now. We need a Messiah now. And yet God knew the right time to send the Messiah. The right time for Christ to take on flesh. And we don't even necessarily understand why he chose that as the right time even today. See, you can do the right thing. In fact, you can try to do more for God. I'm going to do more godly things. I'm going to dump more godly stuff on me. When I was growing up, there was a guy named Donnie Antonow in our church. Donnie was a great guy. He was a bodybuilding country western guitarist. He had a giant belt buckle with his name on it, Antonow on the leather strap of his guitar. You guys know exactly. He would come to church wearing cowboy boots, boot cut jeans, and a gold gym t-shirt that was three sizes too small for him. He was just the coolest guy in the world as a kid. I just, I loved, I loved being around Donnie. He, he got saved. He got baptized. He was just awesome. I learned to play guitar from him. I learned how to lift weights from him. He was, he was like a very cool guy. But Donnie, he was so worried about his mom and dad dying and going to hell that literally every conversation he had with them, he was trying to get them saved. He was trying to get them to make a, a conversion to Christ. And he couldn't not do it. Like he would, he would come home and you know, he was single at the time. He got married and um, actually his, his daughter just uh, passed away a couple, a couple of months ago. Um, 
But he, he would he would come home and open the door and, hey, Don, what's going on? Let me tell you about Jesus. i got to tell you about Jesus. You need to know about Jesus. This is, now, what Don was doing, sharing the gospel, it's a good thing. It's a right thing. But it got to the point where his parents absolutely hated my dad and hated hearing about the church and hated... And it, my dad was not allowed in the house because he had converted their son into some kind of weird cultist and, and there was all this chaos around it. And wasn't anything wrong with what he was trying to do, but the timing, the method, the way he was approaching it. And you know, it's funny. I, I, I wrote this. I don't know if this makes any sense, but I, I, wanna, I thought this was kind of cool um, for me anyway. You know that from the outside, faith and poor planning can look uncomfortably similar? I want you to think about that for a second. From the outside, action and faith and just poor planning can look very similar. We might we don't, we know our motivation, right? But but sometimes we act in faith. We leap we say, all right, God's going to do this thing because uh, he must, because it's the right thing, it's the good thing, and we take the moment, and the result is actually traumatic. It's disastrous. And we sit there going, but I, I wanted to do the right thing. I thought I was doing the right thing. So, Amaziah lives the rest of his life, by the way, um, under the shadow of this one massive mistake. Now, the issues that we have in our lives, they pale in comparison to an army being slaughtered and a city being besieged. This is one of the always the problems with preaching stuff like this. People like read this like, yeah, I have Amaziah's problem. Nah. You make a bad decision, some bad things might happen, but your capital is not going to get besieged, all your wealth taken away, and you carried into exile and eventually assassinated. All right, now, I mean, I don't know all of your lives, but I'm assuming for the most part that's not going to happen to you. But the principle is still there. The principle of doing the right thing, doing the right thing for God without kind of evaluating the situation, choosing the right time, even choosing the right method. And I'll, I'll end this with an illustration just using my two parents. As you all know by now, I can be difficult to manage. This was doubly so when I was a kid. Um, when I was 19, 20 years old, before I met my wife, and, um, and she brought a measure of sanity to the insanity, which is my frantic approach to life. Um, before I met my wife, I, I had some friends at work who um, were bad influences. Now, they, they were nice people, but... They were not Christians and all that stuff. My parents had two very different responses to them. My mother's response was to identify every single thing that I was doing she didn't agree with and make sure I knew in detail and at high volume what those things were and what I should be doing. At one point, I dared, I was living at home, I dared to answer a one ad for a roommate the possibility of moving out of my parents' home and was 
she may or may not remember this, but I remember it very vividly, berated on why I would do such a thing and all the reasons that it was wrong. And uh, uh. My beloved father's response to all of this was to grunt. <laughs> Dad, I, I, you know, this is what happened. I went out with some of my friends and such and such happened. It was really, I, I don't, what, what do I do? And he would be sitting there watching TV with a remote control in his hand. He would go, hmm. didn't matter what the decision was. Now, my dad, you've met my dad. He's very verbose. But when it comes to deal, came to dealing with me at this age, and it took a while, my dad and I didn't really get close until I was in my 30s. Um, he would, hmm. And then when I finally would get to a crisis where whatever the situation was had come to a head and it was a disaster and friendships were falling apart and maybe I had made a mistake and gotten in trouble or whatever, my father would just look at me See? <laughs> Somehow my dad managed to teach me more by just waiting for me to figure out what was wrong with what I was doing. And he safeguarded me. I found out later he, he was taking steps to make sure I didn't go too far. I didn't get, you know, he was aware of things that were happening. But my dad had been, you know, a, a hippie, druggy. Muslim communist and a bunch of other things. So um, he had been all over the place. So he knew where I was. He had confidence that he had done a good enough job raising me that, that I would come back before too long. And he just waited. He timed it. He, he took his time. And, and we might look at those two approaches and we might have an opinion about which one was faith and which one was poor planning about which one trusted in God and which one didn't and which one was looking for timing and all that stuff. But that's not what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at is doing the right thing also involves doing the right thing at the right time. Now, how do you determine what is the right time? I'm so glad you asked. I have homework for you. I'm not going to give you the answer. But if you are interested in this question, I would encourage you to take a while. Go through the scriptures and look through, look particularly for those moments when the right people tried to do the right thing at the wrong time. I'll give you one. Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a big one. I'll give you another one. Paul in Jerusalem after his conversion. Go and look at those things and ask yourself the question, what was wrong with the time, the timing that they were trying to do the right thing? And what can we draw from those scriptures that will help us understand a little bit better the right time? Now, by the way, you are never going to always get it right. Please free yourself of the fear of making a mistake. Try to do what you can to safeguard, you know, the decision. But sometimes we just have to fail forward. It's the way that it is. We have to learn. We have to grow. I call it relational calculus. Why? 
because I don't understand relationships or calculus. <laughs> so it seems like a good term for it. There's a lot of things going on, but we need to kind of figure out the principles and work toward doing the right thing at the right time. And how do you know the difference? That's your homework. Go to the scriptures. Go to other believers. Have a conversation. Be open to the possibilities. Explore that and come away maybe with a little better understanding of what it means to do the right thing at the right time and how to know when it is. You say, Eric, you did not give us the answer. I know. Because Amaziah didn't know. And sometimes I don't know. But you as a believer, you have a responsibility to learn how to better do that as part of your decision making. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Holy Spirit, you know better than any of us the turmoil that goes inside, on inside of our hearts and our minds when we're making decisions, when we're trying to find paths, trying to make the right choices in our relationships, in the church, in our lives. And because, God, you know everything that is and was and shall be, you know all the the possibilities, and it would be so much easier if you would just dictate our lives and our righteousness to you, but inst- to us. But instead, you've given, un- given us the ability to choose, to act, to um, think, to believe. So help us to be free agents of your will. Lord, as, as those who will go from this place to explore this topic will do it, Lord, illuminate their, their hearts and their minds. Show us where to go, when to go, how to go. Lord, may your spirit direct us, whether we are established believers or, or people still exploring the faith or children or seniors or wherever we are, help us to explore the leading of